Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Kansas City jazz saxophonist Bill Crane. We interviewed him on September 16, 2020, as the backdrop of COVID-19 roared on. He talked about his debut 2020 CD, self-titled, on Kansas City's ARC label. He is the director of the Institute of Audio Engineering Arts, a recording engineer and managing member of BRC Audio Productions, and he served as the first musical director and engineer of Kansas City's area youth jazz. He was raised in Concord, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and made his way to Kansas City. It's a story full of other stories. Enjoy. Thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. Sure. So... You have a new album coming out, self-titled, on Christopher Burnett's label. Talk to me a little bit about, before we get into the actual construction and kind of the artistic approach that went into this recording, it's coming out during a pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? You know, the way things are delivered these days anyway, um, it will have some, you know, it'll have some, of effects, but I don't. I don't think much, really. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's just that people are low on money, of course. But you know, this is more of a. Uh, I consider it, and uh, so did uh, Art. Uh, consider it more of a uh, an informative recording. In other words. Um, just because, uh, let's just say, just because you're not uh, 22 years old anymore doesn't mean that uh, you're not involved in music and uh, can't make good music. You know what I mean? That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and people can be multidimensional, you know, yeah. and, and, and do many things at once. You're on the ARC label. Talk to me a little bit about how you got involved with this label and um, kind of how this album came about. Well, I was I was aware of the label for quite a while. Uh, I'd seen uh, some pretty darn good people on there, and um, and then I, I'd gotten to know. I actually gotten to know uh, Chris through uh, just just relations throughout. Uh, my son went to uh, uh, went to college uh, at the conservatory. And uh, he actually uh, played with Chris uh, <laughs> uh, off and on, you know, when he was at the conservatory. Would play things at the the old drum room downtown, things like that. And um, so I knew of Chris, and I'd seen uh, I'd gone out to some clubs and seen his group and things like that. Uh, and we just got to be, you know, talking, and we got actually interested with each other. Um, uh, when I uh, volunteered to uh, join the Kansas City Area Youth Jazz uh, Group, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a very worthwhile uh, endeavor where it's, it's all free to the students and. Um, Basically, the the faculty and and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, we donate our time, and I was really into that. I wanted to give back, and, and there's a lot of people around town uh, that don't realize that um, you know your 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 
let's say your uh, your knee doctor or your orthopedic surgeon or whatever uh, has a music degree. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of thing. Or, yeah. Or that you're, you know, and and uh, he knew that because he he knew my son, and uh, we got together, and I I volunteered to let to to let that program happen at my studios too. And um, I think it was a it's a it's a good a good match um, having this having you here um, put the 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 area youth jazz in a more central location than it would be, let's say, up in, up in Leavenworth or someplace like that. And um, and it also provided some unique um, facilities, uh, uh, cool building, um, close to town already, centrally located. Uh, we're right near downtown KCK, you know, and uh, so it's really close to Missouri and Kansas, you know. Um, plus, we're the best recording studio in the Midwest, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. And so, what brought my son and I to the table was very uh, was very good for the, for the organization, but it was also uh, the organization was good for us. It was a good match. It was a good match, and um, it allows us to work with the students along with the other instructors uh, in a very advanced, modern way that's different than you learn in college. And uh, you can call it a very advanced tips to sounding professional, let's put it that way. You know, you take it. You take it, uh, young man or woman, and and uh, they come in, and they're already really good. They're all state players, level players. Uh, they've been the soloist in their jazz band for a couple of years, um, things like that. But when you really listen to them and you compare it to one of the pros around town or something, they don't sound the same, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. Right. And and but there are reasons for that uh, that don't take really a long time to convert the technique and the knowledge they already have into something that does. And so what we do is, uh, at least my my approach is to recognize what it is about their playing each individual, not not a group, but an individual. What are they doing to make them sound like a high school student and not a pro? And I'm pretty good at uh, figuring that out. And so I tell them, don't ever do that again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. You can play. You can play that lick if you want, but don't ever do it that way. Do it this way. You know, and don't don't put vibrato on every note. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, don't uh, scoop those notes, even though the girls giggled in high school, you know, whatever, you know, it, it, that is, these are things, and it's much more complex than that, of course, but um, those are the things that make you sound, you know, high schoolish, even though you're a significantly talented player and you don't sound professional. 
you know, these are the things that you can learn uh, that would get you into, uh, let's say, USC or Berkeley or someplace like that, rather than, uh, you know, East uh, uh, Teacher College in, in uh, uh, Alabama or somewhere. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I get you. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What do you want the listener to get from this album? What, what, how do you want to feel about what you put in this recording? This, this recording is a re-release of some things that, that I did earlier on in, two, in the 2000s. Um, and it's never been put on, uh, you know, uh, a label before. And, um, it highlights some, some, really great musicians who some people know about and some people most people don't you mention these names and people they go who who's that i don't know who that is you know what i mean well they should because those sure. people are still, are still around and they they pretty much blow away everybody else <laughs> that, that that that's out there you know they're just so amazing players and uh what i want to feature uh we, unfortunately, we lost one of our players on that album, uh, Brian Harmon, the guitarist. Um, he, he died of a, a nerve disease uh, a few years back, similar to Lou Gehrig, I guess, or whatever one of those sort of things. So that's too bad. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's with people that are on, on that, um, I mean, for instance, uh, Gary Helms playing some percussion on there along with a, um, uh, Mambo De Leon, you know, that sort of thing. Well, Gary was in the studio yesterday here. <laughs> you know, he's still playing, you know, and he, he, uh, he, a lot of people don't realize what a great musician he is because he is, you know, uh, Wayne Hawkins on, on keyboards, uh, one of the, one of the most innovative, players who's ever lived here you know now he's been in new york for years now him and his wife lived there um how straight everybody knows who that is one of the best drummers in the known universe you know and uh todd doesn't have a huge presence here anymore at least he's known about right um but um todd is amazing an amazing drummer yeah. And uh finally Bob Blount. And you say that name and and only guys my age perk up their ears. Um Bob Blount is an amazing composer and musician in general and uh bass player. You know. Who also works for the IRS, I think. You know, but but uh you know, it's, it's, <laughs> and uh, well, he didn't used to, but he does now. Um, when you listen to the bass on this on this album, you just a smile comes to your face. Uh, it's, 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 he is absolutely so accurate, so spot on. And of course, with him and Todd together, that's that's amazing. You know. But he's an amazing improviser also. He got an amazing, gets an amazing sound on the bass, you know. And um, 
he's a Jocko fanatic and uh, just admires Jocko so much. So he's capable of many different tones on the bass and uh, proficient in that sort of thing with Jocko. He's proficient in flat bass and all that sort of stuff too. Uh, so it's, it's um, very, he's very, very overlooked these days, unfortunately. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's time for these guys to get a little bit of recognition too. You know, we agreed years and years ago, well, if we ever put it on a label, you know, it'll be cool, you know, but, you know, we just, you know, life gets a hold of you, bites you in the butt every once in a while, you know what I mean? So it, uh, you end up, uh, getting into your day to day routine, um, and, uh, you don't do, you don't do, you don't do. And I just didn't pursue it. And, uh, Chris thought it would be a good idea for us to to be on the arc label and I I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to to reacquaint people with the musician side of Bill Crane, not just the recording engineer side. Um because I mean that's what I'm known for anyway as a recording engineer. It's the music that I bring to it. You know? Uh the musical ear. Not just the technical side of it. The musical side of it. You know, because I you know, honestly, uh, I learned to engineer back in college, you know, and uh, so I've been, you know, I've been capable of doing that since I was like, oh, 18, 19 years old, you know, but, um, you know, the company here in town, we've been, we've been together for 34 years. So, you know, I recognized early on um, when I even moved here. Um, that I probably wouldn't be able to make a living and raise my family like I wanted to just as a saxophone player, doubler type, you know. Um, a lot of those positions in this town, since it's smaller than where I came from, which was uh, Indianapolis at the time, mainly out on the road at the time, and... Uh, you know, I I studied bassoon and all the double reeds. And my doctor recitals, for instance, were on every woodwind instrument. Every woodwind instrument, you know. So uh, you go up and you play a song on uh, or a selection on classical saxophone, and then the very next thing you do might be on oboe or might be on bassoon or flute, you know. Um, that sort of thing. I was very fortunate to have really great teachers uh, uh, that I was working with in my doctor's studies at Ball State University. Well, speaking of teachers, everything to get to you and uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, how did a kid from San Francisco Bay Area grow up to become an audio engineer, a jazz musician, and make their way to Kansas City? Well, like a lot of people, um, you know, I was a child of the... Uh, uh, early 70s, really. And um, um, it's, it's, you know, I've been in California my whole life. And uh, basically, I, I, I first went out to uh, um, Indiana University 
to study with uh, Eugene Rousseau and uh, a classical saxophonist there. I got there and found out he had just gone on sabbatical. <laughs> so I ended up uh, studying with his substitute for that year, who was a member of the, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he himself was a member of the Paris uh, saxophone quartet. And uh, so they didn't mess around there. So I studied with him. Um, later on, got to talk to uh, Gene but, uh, uh, and found out that where I ended up coming to, uh, uh, the reason I ended up in Missouri uh, originally was to teach at uh, uh, CMSU, which is now CSU or whatever. And uh, just two teachers before me, uh, Eugene Rousseau had been the saxophone teacher there. You know, so that's, I thought that was kind of interesting too. You know, but uh, from there, I mean, really I met a lot of people when I got to, I wasn't in Bloomington very long. I met a lot of people there and um, ended up going on the road. You know, just ended up going on the road. So, uh, um, Played with a lot of uh, uh, groups of the time, let's just say. Temptations, OJs, uh, Spinners, uh, Martha Reeves, uh, you name it, really. And uh, these were back in the days where you actually uh, uh, went on the road. It wasn't just one of those things where they come into town and you play with them once like you do now. You know what I mean? Uh, you packed up your stuff and you left state hotel, uh, that sort of thing. So it was a different, a lot of people say they played with these guys, and they did, okay? They, they came in. For instance, uh, you know, last year when uh, the Temps came in to uh, a casino out here, some people were kind of alarmed uh, that are around the, the latest saxophone uh, uh, heroes here in town that I showed up, and um, I was on lead alto, too. They thought that was kind of odd. Well, there was one-tenth left of all the originals, and he remembered me. <laughs> you know, he remembered right me. And, and as a matter of fact, he said, you know, I want to do something on, on this first tune. I'm going to add a little tune in here. I'm going to have you blow some. All right. What, what do you want to do? He says, he says, I don't know. I'll just pick the tune when we start, you know. And uh, I said, any particular key? He says, you know me. I don't know that. So he just started, and he pointed at me. And he gave me a 10-minute stand-up solo. Wow. <laughs> 10 minutes out there at uh, the big casino out there where they do those things. That what was it 1,200 people out there, you know. And it was packed, yeah. too. And the guy sitting beside me, a couple of them knew that I played. Of course, they were, they were a little, little, little more advanced, like Mark Court and guys like that, you know. But some of the newer guys are just going, I had no idea you played saxophone. You know what I mean? <laughs> or at least not to that level, you know what I mean? So it, yeah. it, it does surprise people sometimes when, when you've concentrated on, and if I plead guilty to anything, it's, I con I concentrated on providing for my family, you know, and and making sure that 
my family had as normal an upbringing uh, to the uh, the American dream as possible. You know what I mean? In other words, you get you got a you got a ski boat and you go down you go down to Lake of the Ozarks once the once a year for a week. You know what I mean? Uh, that sort of stuff. Or we lived up where we could get to Smithville Lake also. So we'd go to Smithville Lake a couple times a week. You know, when did we go? Well, we go. We'd go uh, after I was done at the studio. So we'd go at night. We'd be getting there right at dusk. And uh, there's a certain... Um, now that's, that's how my kids learned to swim, was us going out at night at Smithville Lake. And then we'd lay and float and listen to the frogs and the catfish. They'd think it's a frog. I said, no, that's a catfish. Yeah, you you could hear it. If you put, you know, they're, they're crying out to each other. You know, and, and very, very cool. So it's hard to provide that sort of thing for for your family and your children if if, if you're just trying to, you know, pop things out on uh, gigs. And, you know, when I moved here, uh, one of the first groups I joined was Warren Durrett's big band. I don't know if you remember him or not. But... Um, he was paying. He was paying his members of that band, that big band, forty dollars a gig. Forty. And I said, I, he said, that's what we pay. I said, well, I won't be on your band then. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, I was playing in John Von Olin's band in Indianapolis right before I left, and we made a hundred and twenty-five. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and uh, I said, uh, that's ridiculous. He says, well, that's scale. I said, well, that's a dumb scale. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll compromise a little bit. I'll do it for maybe a hundred, hundred bucks a gig. And, uh, and you can write some flute stuff for me if you want to. He says, oh, you play flute? I said, yeah. He says, well, when can we set up the audition? I said, what do you mean audition? You know, I, I said, I don't, I don't need to audition. I said, I was recommended to you by someone, right? He goes, yeah. I said, do you trust him? He says, of course. I was recommended to him by Arch Martin. I don't know if you remember Arch Martin at all. Uh, yeah. Great, great trombonist from town here. Yeah. That was one of my favorite albums. Uh, Bill Brownlee cultivated that a few years ago, and I love yeah. that. They're, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. And Archie come down and heard me play at CMSU when I first got there. And uh, I'd given a I'd given a recital, uh jazz recital down there. Um it was kind of a combination in jazz and, and classical, you know. And um you know, he he just we got to know each other really well after that. He says he says, Are you playing much? I said, Well no, I'm busy here, you know. And uh, he says, "Well, let me see. Do you want to? Let me let me let me see what I can do." So, you know, uh, there it is. You know, I mean, that's how I got into that. And I didn't tell people for years and years. You know, and he, and and then Warren also said, "No, Warren's a good guy. Don't get me wrong. You know, he owned Olesa. <laughs> you know, at that time, pretty much all it's all farmland, but." Um, he said, well, what people do is they come in and they pick up their checks at the union. I said, well, just mail me mine. 
I said, I'm living in Warrensburg, man. You know, I don't want to drive over to the Union. <laughs> and um, uh, he says, well, I guess I could do that. I says, yeah, man, it's, what is it, 10 cents? <laughs> I guess you could do that. So, <laughs> so you know, it was one of those learning things. And um, uh, it was a shock for me to come to Kansas City at that time, to be honest with you, because scales were so low. There were so many good musicians around that there were dime a dozen. And that's what that's what I want to let people know about these days is, is a lot of these guys they haven't heard of. You know, they still play. And they didn't get worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? They still play really well. Maybe they play in a different style than you do. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe uh uh maybe they're actually working uh every day as an insurance agent or, or this or that, you know what I mean? Uh, but maybe that's because they're providing for their families in a certain manner that they want to. Uh, and we tend to let that slip a little bit when when we're younger because we don't have those families. You know what I mean? So, but if uh, I mean it's just it's just uh, it's a documentation really of hey these guys are here these guys are good and uh, call these guys once in a while too you know. And uh, yeah, that's what it's that's what it's about. And, and uh, Chris at Art thought that was important, and uh, I think it's important too. We we still have lots to contribute. I'm more, you know I'm working on another album right now, and um, you know my band for the last uh, six or eight years is you know my son plays in it, so, so uh, you know it, it's. Uh, it's good. It, it's been good. It's been good. Talk to me a little bit about, like, the very first show that you ever saw that really made you think, man, this is something I would like to do with my life, whether it was jazz or otherwise. Oh, well, living where I lived, uh, that's easy, pr- pretty much. I mean, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, a place called Concord, and uh, which is the last stop on BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, right? So at that time, it was very easy for me to get into the city. I could get into Oakland in, gosh, what, seven minutes. I could get into San Francisco in about uh, 12 to 13 minutes. I could go north. I could go south. Before I went to undergraduate master's school up in Chico, um, part of the state system there, had a very, very good music department. Um, when we think of a college here this quite large. What might you think of this being a large college? How many students? Like the state system, and there's two systems in California. There's the university of system, right? And then there's the state system, just like in Missouri or whatever. Okay. But the difference is there's a gazillion of, of the state universities out there. And Chico, uh, at that time, even, had 28,000 students, 28,000 students. You know, what's UNKC got, 12,000, 14? You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was on a different scale. So what I'm getting at is they had a lot more of things that we wouldn't even think about here. 
one of my teachers back then uh, uh, became the head of all the recording department out there, which was the first recording department uh, recognized for for a degree. And and so, you know, he was he was he taught me synthesis, you know, working on Moog modulars and and uh, and other brands, you know, and uh, Buklas and all that sort of thing, ARP Odyssey, ARPs, and then the first portable and the ARP Odyssey, all those sort of things. Um, so, I, you know, I studied composition. I studied uh, um, uh, synthesis. I studied engineering. I, uh, uh, but I also was a uh, – I started out there as an engineering major. And uh, – not engineering and audio, but just engineering. And then, because <clears throat> I wanted to be in electrical engineering, because uh, when I went to high school, you could, I, I was in uh, uh, electronics classes for three years straight. You know, so I know quite a bit about electronics. And and uh, and so, it, it was a different focus on schools back then, but, uh, um it was a very good school to go to. Let's just put it that way. And uh, they were one of the first schools to have a, a 16 track uh, studio at the school. And also then we had a 24 track studio at the school. And from there I got to go and do uh, internships at Wally Hyder Studios in San Francisco, things like that. So I had my engineering chops happening years before years before and and I changed uh, after after my first year I changed from that engineering major because they were just doing mainly general engineering courses like colleges do you know what I mean uh, and general studies things like that I was out setting trusses on bridges and things like that and uh, I changed the music organ Believe it or not, organ, classical organ, and because uh, I had a keyboard background too. But then I decided to change that over to uh, saxophone and woodwinds, and uh, very lucky to have some wonderful teachers. You know, they didn't have a saxophone teacher, of course, and so I studied with a uh, flute teacher which the studies that we use for the two instruments, sax and flute, are very similar. In fact, they're adaptations of each other's stuff. You know, uh, we in saxophone world, we work with Fairling etudes and things like that. Well, those are rewrites of Anderson's studies and, on the flute. <laughs> That's all they are, just rewrites. And uh, he was an excellent teacher and... He had been a student of William Kincaid, a very famous uh, flutist uh, from Philly, Philadelphia Orchestra, and uh, I learned a lot from him. You know, my bassoon teacher was, uh, and he was head of the department, which played well for me later. Uh, he had been a bassoonist in the National Orchestra in Washington for years and years. So even though we're up in Northern California, at one of the state colleges. It's a state college of almost 30,000 people, and they had quite quite the resources, you know. And um, 
I, I consider myself lucky um, to kind of get into these situations. And how I got out of there, basically it was through contacts that I had with people who had already left. You know, uh, I first met uh, Richie Cole, my friend Richie Cole. First met him uh, and introduced him to his second wife at, at Chico, uh, which I thought was rather rather strange, but there it is, you know. And uh, he was ready to hurt for quite a while, you know. And uh, so, of course, Richie uh, just died this, this last year, um, which is too bad. But, um, I love Richie. Richie was one of my favorite people on the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we did a lot of playing together. You know, he, he kept wanting me to quit doing what I was doing and go back out with him. You know, uh, we spent a whole week together once down in uh, uh, the Virgin Islands doing duos and stuff like that. Where we would, uh, we would one guy play while another guy would scat things, you know, and, and do that sort of stuff. And, uh, you're just a good friend. We did some teaching together at clinics and stuff, and and uh, he introduced me to a lot of people, you know. And uh, San Francisco was a good place to be around. I mean, people came there back then, you know, and uh, that's where I first met uh, Cal Jader. It's where I you know, first met uh, uh, um, believe it or not, uh, uh, oh, What's your name? Uh, you know the the gal Sheila E, the drummer. You know, played with Prince for so long. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, her father uh, was his name Estevez. Uh, everybody hung out down there at Tower Records down on the wharf. The first place I met uh, uh, Dave Liebman was here. He lived on a houseboat out in the bay. <laughs> you know, so it was it was just such a uh, just such a an influx of, of musicians and talent and and that sort of thing uh, to be in at that time. And it changed later. It, it changed. But, um, you know, when I was interning, for instance, I got to, <laughs> I didn't, didn't get to actually engineer them, but I got to help and, and be around in the same building and hang out with, you know, some of the, the greatest groups of that time, too, like, you know, Santana and Grateful Dead and and, and those sort of groups. So I respected those groups also. You know, um, I'm one probably one of the few guys right here that's ever been to the Grateful Dead's house. You know what I mean? You know that sort of thing. Um, you know, so it, it's uh, being from that area is cool, but it also I had friends who were out and around doing other things too, and uh, through contacts with them. Uh, I just said, okay, I'm getting out of here. And uh, I ended up in the, in Kansas City uh, basically through an injury. I'd gotten hit, hit by a car uh, on my motorcycle and gave me a 40-year-old injury I'm still still dealing with today, you know. So, wow. um, yeah, that's just the way it goes, you know. And uh, I had to teach myself to walk. You know, when I was in doctor school, I was in a wheelchair for a week, you know, before I started uh, uh, teaching um, 
at uh, Warrensburg over there. Uh, I was still on, I still, I was still on crutches. And the night before I got there, I was out on the road with the, uh, the Miller band. You know, it was my last night with the Miller band. You know, and so, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was rather challenging when they wanted to walk me all over campus to show me the campus, you know. I'm going, you realize I'm on, on crutches here, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, but uh, that's how I got back here. It was to pay for bills, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, and I, I knew about this school, the school there and everything. And uh, I think I did a good job while we were there. And, and um, but I only stayed four years and uh, wanted to get over to the, the city because I, by that time, I was, I was uh, playing a lot of gigs and I put it over the edge because I got a three night, three night a week gig. With a group of mine at uh, the old Milton. After Milton Horse had died, uh, they had live music in there, and I had a group that that played every Thursday, Friday, Saturday there for a couple of years, and uh, we were the first ones to do that. It was a group called Jazz Mania at the time, and um, uh, people like Brian Hicks were in it, and, and uh, Ed Farr, and uh, just you know, different people from different 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 places. Uh, that you know, you say those names now. People might know Brian. Uh, Brian was actually here yesterday too. Uh, he's still doing real well. You know, so um, that's what brought me here. And uh, you know, I didn't like the wages so much here. I couldn't raise a family on this. Certainly on the music wages, but. Uh, but the combination of my engineering and music put together, I mean, I still consider engineering in the way I do engineering, in the way we teach engineering here. We have an engineering school here. Um, very musical. All of our engineers here undergo music training. In fact, they take, they take two semesters of uh, intro to music classes. They take two semesters of uh, theory classes. Um, they, they take MIDI classes. They take every a lot of things that have to do with, with just the mechanics of music. They learn how to play keyboards while they're here, and this is while they're learning to do, you know, engineering. Why? Because we think that's think the music part of things is very important to the engineering, and that's why most of our uh, uh, graduates have great jobs. They have the best jobs around um, because they're trained, just trained really well. You know? So uh, we're proud of what we've done here. That's what got me. Without a doubt. So what what do you like the best about being a musician? Well, it, it uh, I feel free. Yeah. And. Um, when I'm playing, I, I feel just let go. You know, I'm an improviser. That's, that's what I do, and and um, I'm, I'm just if I've got the right guys playing with me, uh, who've come to understand how I play, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, just like any musician, uh, that's an improvising musician feels. 
um, you just love it. You know, I, I'm not one of those guys that uh, consider the standard uh, not very much anyway as being, uh, you know, the latest thing that some dude wrote down the street. I consider the standards to be the standards from old. The same standards that uh, Brian Hicks considers the standards. You know what I mean? Uh, Ten Pan Alley. You know what I mean? All that sort of stuff. All the Gershwin stuff. Cole Porter, uh, Jerome Kern. All the, all these people. Um, the songs that really had meaning to them, had great lyrics to them, had uh, uh, really nice chord changes. You know what I mean? Well, those are the same things that were used by Charlie Parker and and uh, to Lee Conan's to everybody else, Sonny Stitt, you know, Sonny Rollins. They all they all drew from the, the, the what we call the standards. And now the colleges tend to teach standards as being the songs that were written by those jazz musicians who actually got most of their chord changes from 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 the the real standards, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, uh, see, I I don't I don't really play. Uh, oh, I I have I have trouble knowing uh, the titles to them. To be honest with you, I'm not much of a Charlie Parker type of player, but I can play bebop. You know where everybody today in college for, uh, learns. Uh, Whatever tune that is, you know. But what do I play? Indiana. That's where the chord changes come from. You know what I mean? So, and do I know Indiana? Of course. I lived in Indianapolis and uh, Muncie for a long time. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, it's that that's I, I tend to take my my cues from the original changes so much of this was built on. Um so that's where I differ uh with a lot of people today and people more my age group differ with guests today. It's what what we consider the the standards, what people today uh uh consider the standards. Um you know, today a lot of times, I mean, don't get me wrong, the people come out of the colleges form very well, very well. But uh, I prefer hearing them 15, 20 years later after they've, you know, forgotten everything they learned in the practice room and regurgitated on every solo they did and uh, just close their eyes, start from scratch. Do, do lift come in? Of course they do. That's part of part of everything that happens, but true thought in music and in improvising slows you down a little bit too. The faster you play, the more you're playing licks that you practice. You know, and that's fairly impressive today. Uh, people think, you know, how fast can you play this tune? How fast can you play this tune? Uh, not so much of what did you actually play there that was new, that was unique, that was instantaneous composition, that was uh, interesting. 
that sort of thing. And so I kind of come from that school, and um, there might be some young people who say, "Oh, that I don't, I want to, I don't want to sound like that old style." That's you know that sort of thing, and that's fine. Uh, but by old style, you know, I'm not coming out here sounding like uh, uh, it's it's pretty modern sound. Still, <laughs> you know, it was just uh, different than today. Let's say a little bit more across between uh, uh, straight ahead jazz uh, and fusion things like that. Sometimes, um, of course, fusion is coming back pretty well. People are starting to realize uh, that a lot of their things they've been putting down for years, like these smooth jazz guys, well, they're doing it for the money, really. Uh, and I don't know if that makes them a sellout, like people say, or it just makes them smart. Because they are really providing for their families. Uh, and if you listen to some of these guys really play, they are not slouches. They can really play. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. So let me ask you this. You know, being in the middle of a pandemic, having no live jazz, when we do return, both musician returns to the stage and the audience returns to the crowd, what do you hope we all realize about live music when we come back? That it's glorious, really. Uh, I, th I, I, you know, it's glorious. Um, and musicians have opened up some new sources of revenue for themselves um, with the little, uh, you know, the little basically podcasts that they do, you know, from home or whatever. And uh, we're embracing that at our studios here um, by making that a venue for them where they can be actually mic'd up professionally and keep their social distancing and we have tons of barriers and all that sort of stuff and clean 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 rooms and all that sort of stuff here um and and brian is doing that we're doing that with a uh, a classical chamber group coming up this weekend and as a matter of fact we're committed to that and uh, to help you know people out and uh we're, we're having an absolutely dedicated uh, Google Fiber system put in just for that. So we'll be the only one on it because on any of these things, you can lose signal at any time if at uh, certain times of day because, you know, let's say you're a, uh, spectrum customer or something like that. Uh, well, that's good service until you get everyone within uh, 10 square miles using it. You know, and when is that? Well, that's people are home. <laughs> people are only protecting themselves from the virus, right? And so what are they doing? They're on their phones, they're on their computers, uh, they're using all that. So your 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 uh, bandwidth goes available goes way down now. Uh hardly anybody has really stable bandwidth today without dedicated lines and that's so that's what we're putting in. You know, and so when you have you have a, you know, a thousand upload and download at the same time. It's just dedicated to you. You're not going to have any dropouts. And stuff. So uh, those are the kind of commitments we're making to the future, recognizing that uh, 
musicians have been innovative, you know, and we don't want that source of revenue to stop for them, you know, either, you know. So I think that's that's one thing, actually, COVID has done positive. Uh, it's really hard to come up with those positives, you know, because <laughs> uh, everything else has not been quite so positive. So, yeah. Um, but there are ways to, people are performing again. Uh, out in the, out in some of the clubs, there are ways to do it absolutely safely. And depending what instrument you're playing, um, uh, it's safe for everybody else around you too. Uh, one of the the worst instruments, of course, being uh, flute, because most of the air uh, is wasted air. It just blows right across the flute. So it's like you're purposely blowing straight out, you know. So when we do flute here, for instance, they're either in a separate room or, you know, isolated or they're behind uh, eight-foot-tall barriers. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Um, so it has nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. And, um, um, well, you know, we're into old ways of doing things as far as... Um, what we consider to be the right way to do things, uh, of course. But then we're in all the new ways of doing things because we certainly don't want to be contributing to anybody getting sick or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I have some pre-existing conditions myself, so I certainly don't want to get it. I was tested for COVID just the other day again. You know, uh, all my employees did, you know. So, um, we take it seriously. And, and, I think if everybody just takes it seriously, you know, you don't have to freak out, but take it very seriously, then we'll all get through it eventually, you know. So my final question to you is this. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, yeah. your friends, your coworkers, um, those that listen to your music, but you're living your life. Who do you think you are? Well, um, basically, I'm a musician. <laughs> that's who I am and <laughs> as all these and I've never considered myself anything other than that um, you know I've recorded I've recorded hundreds of albums for people uh, I've never charged a friend to be on this recording ever never <laughs> you know what I mean and um, that's a that's kind of a thing today if people charging for everything, their, their best friend, they're charging. What are they really doing? They're just charging each other back and forth. Who's that give money to? The government. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if they just did each other favors all the time? There you go. It's much more friendly. Uh, the government can't charge you taxes on a favor. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, it, I think some some thinking needs to be redone about um, music professions and that sort of thing. I don't consider myself any any less of a musician for concentrating my life in in uh, you know engineering and doing musical engineering, uh, being the producer on many 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 albums for free for free. And, um, you know, 
one of those things. You know, I, I produced two or three of Angela Hagenbach's albums, right? What did I charge you for producing? Nothing. Huh. What did I charge what did I charge you for playing on them if I did? Nothing. You know, I mean it's it's that sort of thing. Um Angela and I were neighbors up in uh, Parkville for many, 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 many years. You know, we'd run across each other in house or something. You know what I mean? You know, that sort of stuff. And and uh you know, I don't forget things like that, you know, and it's um you know, doing favors for people, not not being a mercenary. You know, that that's the thing. Now everybody has to have money to live, of course. But I don't I don't think you do it by um, setting up some code where I get paid for everything I do. Wow. You know, that's pretty severe in in my opinion. And maybe I'm just totally out of vogue there, you know, but, uh, you know, friends are friends, you know what I mean? And I think we should treat people better. And, you know, I'm used to, uh, we don't, we don't talk about politics or anything else right here. I don't think it really has a place in business, you know, and, uh, I just hate them all, you know? So, um, I've never made any, I've never thought anything got better with politicians. Only worse, you know. I mean, doesn't matter which side they're on. But um, a lot of people are really divided these days because of that stuff. And it's unfortunate because you come from an era, and probably you too, that people could disagree just horribly about political things. But then immediately, once the conversation is over, well, let's go have a beer. You know what I mean? And yeah, you yeah. Don't, you don't you don't speak about it again. You don't hate that person because of what they just said politically. You know, I mean that's ridiculous if you think about it. It's trite. You know, it's it's inhuman almost. It's it's uh, we've reached a point sometimes where it seems like it's more important what people think we think we think than than what they do think because you don't listen to what they do think you don't care you hate them if they don't think what you think so you know and that happens on both sides of the of the politics you know so uh you know it's just uh we stay out of it and, and uh i just wish everybody could get back to the point of being friends and friends that'd be cool now make money too but but realize that uh you know being, being, uh, I don't know. We don't, just because we're a musician or an artist or something like that, I don't believe we have something coming to us. I still believe we have to work for it. And in order for that to, uh, really work, it has to be something desirable by the people that are paying to listen to you. I mean, who can really expect a lot of money from something that you're forcing down most people's throat, you know? And, uh, you know, why would I go down to uh, one of the clubs, you know, and big room, that sort of thing. And there's like four people in there listening. Everybody else is back, back by the bar screaming and yelling and, and doing what people normally do in a bar. 
You know, I don't know how many times I've gone into so-called popular clubs around here. Uh, this is pre-COVID I'm talking about, right? And uh, where everything was very cool, supposedly. And there's really nobody in there listening to jazz. Not really, not many. Uh, occasionally, you could do it by 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 uh, going to uh, the Blue Room or something like that, you know. And we played at the Blue Room a lot, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but most clubs, no, uh, not not the case. So I I think we have to um, be a little friendlier with what we do. Uh, we may not like smooth jazz. I do believe we need to embrace it as a as a as a form that reaches you know probably a hundred times more people. Uh, if it may, if not a thousand times more people than traditional jazz styles. And I don't know if I can all those guys uh, sellouts and everything because of that. I see them as providing. Uh, something that people enjoy listening to. Or maybe it's not us. That's okay. You know, because I, I listen to as much uh, bluegrass and uh, things like that as they do anything else. You know, I just love, I love improvisation. I love uh, American ingenuity, you know, that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I'm just a, I'm a musician. That's what I am, man. Yes, I'm a musician. Bill, thanks for taking some time out today to talk with me on Jazz Man, to talk about the album and your life and music. I appreciate it. Well, I hope the people that hear it uh, like it. Yeah, I hope they like it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Bill for his time, cool, and energy. If you want to hear more interview, if you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.